Welcome everyone to this uh, week's edition of the Commercial Real Estate 101 Meetup. Uh, for those of you guys who are just tuning in for the first time, uh, we started this back in April of 2020 to really just be the go-to resource for all things related to commercial real estate. Um, since then, we've grown uh, through LinkedIn primarily and obviously on Facebook and other platforms. Uh, and we do record these videos uh, and po post them on our YouTube channel as well into perpetuity. Uh, today, we actually have a phenomenal guest, Chris Ressa who's been doing some awesome things uh, over you know, his wealth of experience in the retail space. And so I thought it'd be awesome to bring him on and talk a little bit about uh, retail and as it pertains to asset and property management. Uh, because again, you can buy a property and, and managing the property and the asset itself, especially when you're dealing with investors, can be a, it's a, it's a sophisticated process. And so I think no better person to talk about that than Chris. So, hey, Chris, how's it going? Doing well. How are you? Can't complain, man. Can't complain. It's a beautiful day. So every day above ground is great. So um, to start out, what we usually do with our speakers is we like to learn a little bit more about them. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and really what got you into commercial real estate? Yes. Yeah, so I am a husband, a father. I have two kids, uh, a four-year-old daughter and a two-and-a-half-year-old son live in northern new jersey we're going back to the office in july excited about that uh, july 6th i'm the chief operating officer at dlc so we own uh, somewhere approximately 16 17 million square feet it's changing and evolving daily uh across the country so we're traditional vertically integrated owner of retail real estate. So we buy it, we own it, we lease it, we manage it, we do everything uh, internal. And we, for the most part, focus on the things that we own. We have some third party work that we do, but not traditional third party leasing and management. We do take on some, what I would call specialty consulting assignments from here, here and there. But our primary is our primary line of business is buying, owning, and leasing, managing uh, the shopping centers that we own. We have a development arm uh, outside of that where we do triple net lease development for preferred clients. <laughs> um, we do that in a variety of markets for uh, preferred retailers. And that's a pretty quick build to sell business traditionally. Um, I mean, once in a while, we may hold it. We really haven't uh, held much of that. That's really buy it, lease it, build it, sell it type business. Um, I got into real estate right out of college. First job out of college was on the corporate real estate side. I worked for Sherwin-Williams, the paint stores company. I was in their corporate real estate department going around, finding new stores for them to open, new district offices, new warehouses, um, throughout the East coast was my territory. So I was hiring brokers and in that world, um, on the corporate real estate side, decided I wanted to be, <clears throat> I didn't want to be a broker, but I wanted to be a landlord and I ended up on the developer side. That's, I kind of started my career and then majority of my career spent on the leasing side and ended up, uh, two and a half years ago, becoming the COO at DLC. And I oversee our leasing construction, property management, and 
um, uh, marketing departments. About a 130 person company, about half of it rolls up into my world. That's awesome. Yeah. And you guys are, you guys are have properties really all over the country, which is yeah. really well, pretty awesome. I would say the Eastern half, call it, if you drew a line from like Texas up everything East. Yeah. Which is a, a substantial footprint. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of people obviously that operate more regionally, but you guys are one that kind of branched out just from the, you know, the Eastern. Yeah. Part we're, we're investment thesis driven, not geographically driven. Mm-hmm. So we're value add players. We want to leverage the platform to add value to real estate. And we're looking for some level of distress, a good story. And to do that, if you focused on any one geography, especially in the price range that we buy at, which is traditionally about 30 million and up, if you focus on any one market, there's no deals available. You could wait five years and never buy anything. So we have offices in Dallas, Chicago, Atlanta, DC, uh, New York, and Buffalo. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. We had uh, Aaron Zucker on the call um, a couple of months ago and he was yep. kind of talking about being geographically agnostic when you yeah. come, when it comes to looking for deals, because like you said, I mean, the, the, the perfect deal for you may not be right in your backyard. It could be, you know, down somewhere in another part of the country that you wouldn't initially have looked at, but it's a, it's a good opportunity for you to yeah, leverage. And we often say we're geographically agnostic, but not geographically stupid. So <laughs> That's a smart way to do it. But so this this next question kind of lends itself to probably both both of your experiences, both probably at Sherman Williams. And now that you've been you've been in this in this role for quite some time uh, talking about analyzing potential retail opportunities. Obviously, when you're looking at Sherman Williams, there's probably certain things you're looking for. But now that you're looking uh, more from the investment standpoint, can you tell us a little bit about what your thought process is as you're going through and analyzing these potential opportunities? So I think. The first thing, it's definitely a collaborative team effort when we're looking to, to buy. Um, you know, we start from a really top level, right? Which is, is it value add? Which, and is it, um, is it value add? And is it of a deal of size? So the first thing we're, you know, we're looking for higher levered IRRs and we're looking for deals of size that's the first component it's all open air so we're not looking at enclosed and we really haven't been touching the reposition and enclosed mall either we've been looking at repositioning open air assets so that's the first thing uh which is just a big that that cuts out a lot of deals uh, especially in today's environment where cap rates are getting those type of returns is challenging to find and deals of size are second challenge. Once you do that, I think we're looking at the, the core market fundamentals that everyone's looking at. We're looking at the demographics, you know, growing, shrinking populations, staying flat. We're looking at the, um, uh, the overall uh, macroeconomic drivers like unemployment, and who are the employers in the market? Um, we're looking at the political environment there. Is it developer friendly or not? We're looking at the total landscape of competition in the market. And we're looking at how mature from a retail perspective it is. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, typically there's a big lease up involved in our plans. And so, there has to be the demand for that lease up. 
for sure. Now, do you guys take into consideration, again, if it's a distressed asset, maybe that this isn't as, as strong of a consideration, but do you guys look at, you know, tenant mix or, you know, are you totally, we're looking at the, yeah, from a proper, from a granular property level, we're looking at all the things that everyone's looking for, whether that's access, uh, visibility, co-tenancy, sure, from a property level. Sure. And, and are you guys primarily looking, do you guys look at anchored centers like with, with, yeah, typically if, if you're looking in the $30 million range, typically smaller grocery anchored centers are out and unanchored centers are out typically. Sure. Okay. That would make complete sense given the deal size. That's awesome. Yeah. So when, when you identify a property and then go through the process of bring it into the fold, uh, can you kind of explain to us what your approach is to, effectively managing that property so that, you know, you can get it to where you need it to be. Well, it, it first starts with, you know, on the acquisition side, we are, once we start the due diligence process, we are, we're bringing everyone into the fold from a, uh, our property management, our asset management team, our development team, our leasing team, and we're going over the high level business strategy. The NOI is this today. Here's where we're, we're taking the NOI. Here's the CapEx we have programmed. Here's the, um, the TI dollars that we have and or landlord work dollars we have available. And um, then we start the process of everyone has their marching orders tied to the overall business strategy to go and execute on that. That's awesome. So you, you, it's a really coordinated effort because like you said, I mean, you, once you get the property acquired, I'm assuming, like you said, do you have your in-house, do you have in-house brokers as well that, that help with the leasing efforts or you contract that out to a third party? We don't third party. We in, in-house leasing team. Yeah. You have an in-house leasing team. Okay. That makes sense. So yeah, you, you have the marching orders that you issue them. That's awesome. So I guess, what are some of the typical obstacles that you face as you're looking to reposition a property? Um, obviously each individual deal is different, but I thought if you provided some feedback on that, that'd be helpful. Yeah. So you mean once the deal's acquired? Correct. Yeah. Once the acquisition's made and now you're, you're looking to implement your business plan. Like what, what are some of the obstacles, that, the common obstacles that you, you've, you've faced? I think, um, you know, local government regulations, especially if you have development, that's number one. I think REA, OEA, uh, restrictions and uh, what you can and can't do are the, you know, two of the biggest obstacles to executing. But I think that's where if you have the team that can execute and navigate those waters, that's where you can create value that maybe others can't. That execution is not easy to navigate all those different things. So if you can navigate those waters, you can do things that people thought were not possible. So those are probably two of the biggest things, like all the things that restrict. I think if there was an open canvas and no one needed other tenant or other government approvals to do things, there'd probably be a much more aggressive uh, real estate growth in America from a commercial real estate perspective, right? If you think about it, and you can think about any asset class, and I say this all the time, let's say you have a piece of land or maybe it's an existing building and you want to turn it into something different. And one of the challenges with commercial real estate in America is 
you're trying to satisfy a demand today that you can't deliver to market for could be three, five, who knows, 15 years. By the time you actually put shovels in the ground and you're ready and you open the doors, the demand might not be there. So there's a huge risk involved in commercial real estate in the United States. Being able to compress those timelines to so the demand is still there when you actually go to when you're actually open to the market, I think is quite critical. Sure. And and you referenced REA OEA. Could you could you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that? Just for those Yeah, reciprocal two. easement agreements. So typically, you know, um, and not typically, either there's there's agreements with adjacent property owners that dictate a lot of things, what can be built, what uses can be in in projects. Um, and, you know, then you have in integrated shopping centers, you know, the anchor leases typically have restrictions on landlords as well, even sometimes outside of those REAs. And so, you know, if you have a, a McDonald's in the front of a shopping center and the McDonald's is owned by some triple net lease owner and the property integrated shopping centers owned by someone else. There's typically a REA, which has dictates parking restrictions or and or requirements, no build areas on the property. It dictates uses that can come right. That'll probably say that you can't build a casino next to McDonald's that blocks the entrance to the McDonald's, things like that. So that there's, um, and so navigating those, because while that's an extreme example, there might be something that you think, oh, over there, I could build a Starbucks. Well, that might fall into a no build area, even though in the, to the common person who's driving by the property, it might not seem like that would be of an issue, but that was contemplated a long time ago and navigating those waters to either go to the McDonald's in that scenario, remember to get consent to go build that. And then once you do that, you have to go through the government approvals to do that. Sure. So that's, that's interesting. So gaining access to some of that information, I'm sure it can be kind of interesting. So are you, are you referencing, like, if you have a shopping center that has like an out parcel that you're considering developing some form of, you know, a Starbucks or whatever else that probably necessitates you referencing some of the leases in place for other out parcels yeah, from to make sure that but what I would, you, you're going to pick up on that in due diligence as you get all the appropriate information because all the, the REA will be on title and you'll, you'll want to review all the existing leases. It comes down to if your original underwriting contemplated in order to hit the returns you wanted, you had to do something and now you're finding it, it violated agreements. Are you prepared to take on that risk thinking that you can get those agreements changed or not? And if not, if you if you don't think you can, then is the deal still worth it? If not, if not, you pass. If it is, well, I guess the question is why? Are you going to make up that NOI elsewhere? Was that just gravy on the, or was that actually part of the core business plan? Sure. So that so that's part of like you said the underwriting process, which I'm assuming goes through the as you go through the acquiring the pro the the, the property. That's something that that you need to take. Yeah, into typically the process would be like you're given a an offering memorandum. Let's talk about an on market deal, and you're given all the financial information, and then you look through and you and you create a model based on the financial information. We can. 
And then when you go through due diligence, you know, once you sign a contract, you're going to have a due diligence period. And during that period, you're going to be able to go through what I'll call the legal information and all the recorded documents that will get shared with you. And then you'll be able to see if you can actually execute on that, you know, through existing agreements or those have to be changed. Um, and because on any real estate deal, you, there's no certainty that even if you didn't have those legal restrictions, that you're still going to be able to execute on your business plan. Um, you might not, you might just miss, you might've missed the market on rents. You might've missed the market on demand and tenants available. And now you add in a, a complexity, whereas you don't have hundred percent certainty on those financial things that you're underwriting. And now you add the legal complexity, it just adds an element of risk on the acquisition. And are you willing to take that risk? Sure. So, and that, that probably lends itself probably quite interesting as you start branching into other markets that you're not necessarily familiar with. So how, a question that kind of branches off of that, how, I guess, especially from the tennis standpoint, when you, when you're looking at a property and when you're trying to determine whether or not you want to place certain tenants there and implement it within your business plan, how do you determine how you're going to be able to execute that strategy in a market that you're not necessarily familiar with? Obviously you have the demographic information and you have some other metrics that you can reference, but there's something to be said about, you know, having boots on the ground and understanding, you know, the, 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 factors at play. So, I, yeah, I, so I would first say that we cover geography from our regional offices where we have teams. So we're looking okay. in, we're looking in markets that we might not know specifically what the local pizza guy had for breakfast that morning. But I would tell you that a lot of the opportunities that we're looking at we we're pretty familiar with the markets we've got pretty good over 30 years in a large team pretty good um, scale and breadth of knowledge of and our pulse on what's you know and tracking of markets i would say it's rare that we're looking at a deal in the eastern half of the country and we're looking at a market and we're like never knew this existed. What's going on here? This is really interesting. That's, that's really not happening. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Awesome. So one thing I wanted to ask you is, could you talk to us about maybe some of the repositioning, well, uh, uh, recent repositioning you guys did and, and what the outcome was? I, I referenced your website and saw a few that you kind of. Yeah, I think, I think, I think one of the more, interesting ones was um, in Frederick, Maryland. Mm -hmm. um, Washington REIT, which was a public company, started to uh, dispose of some of their retail real estate and focused in other sectors of commercial real estate. And they had a unique portfolio centered in and around the Washington DC area, which where Frederick, Maryland is. And we, we operate in the DC area. We had a pretty good presence in DC. And so we knew the market, we actually were, we had worked on a property uh, in Frederick before. So we knew the market and we had 
much of their stuff was core stable grocery anchored coupon clipping deals. Uh, and, and first Washington took a few of those. We weren't interested in those, but there was two deals in Frederick that we were interested in that were higher cap rates and, and on the, on one of the assets required a pretty massive lift, which was we purchased it in August of 19. It was a Kmart. We had run a void analysis, pretty good understanding of who was missing in the market. And we had a good understanding of who was not in their correct prototype in the market, who would need to move uh, or who would have a desire to move. And, um, you know, we were able to pay a price that if we failed on the redevelopment, it would still actually cash flow to a number that was reasonable to us. So, uh, you know, fast forward to August of 19. In that process, we worked on, uh, you know, we, during the contract, there was renewal with Joanne happening. We had a longstanding relationship with Joanne. We, and Joanne stores the, and it was a successful store. Was, that at, the, was that at that location? Was it the, the, yeah. that location? Okay. So they, they had a, it is a successful store and they wanted to renew long-term. They had a rent that they were looking for. So they wanted a remodel. And so we were willing to do all those things. Washington, re, they were, you know, part of their business plan. The deal didn't work exactly between the parties. And so we were able to work on a uh, renewal with Joanne that allowed us to eliminate a no build area so that we could build an out parcel on some vacant land. And we got a long-term lease and there's some other lease clauses that we cleaned up and we did that renewal before we closed. And then that enabled us to go and build an out parcel building. And we're doing that with Aspen Dental now, but that was in August. And then the linchpin was Kmart who was significantly under market and could we get them out? They had a ton of options and there was, you know, been a kind of a stalemate between Washington and and them. And the business plan really relied on the ability to get Kmart out. And we thought eventually that Kmart would go, but the longer it took, the less our returns would be. And so that was August of 19. And they ended up in a mass closure of December of 19, Kmart decided to close the store. We had already been working on some deals and we backfilled and started construction in the pandemic and signed the leases in the pandemic with Lidl, Ollie's Bargain Outlet, Harbor Freight Tools and Goodwill. So the entire box was redeveloped at much higher rents than Kmart was paying. And the, you know, we were able to redo the entire facade of the, the property, not just the Kmart box and now have the ability to put this out parcel that we're not in construction yet. So um, that was a really good reposition. We had, during that, we had been working with Lidl and Ollie's while Kmart was still in possession. That's what enabled us to execute quickly. Um, is the minute that Kmart 
went dark, we were in the permitting process, basically. The leases were already signed with, I think, two of them contingent on Kmart, us getting some time period that we had to get possession from Kmart. Um, so Lidl, we had been, when we started trying to figure out during due diligence what tenants might be of interest in the market, Lidl was one of them that, and we got the ability to turn a non-gross anchored center into a gross anchored center, which is obviously something that people like to, uh, uh, you know, is the soup du jour right now in retail real estate. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was uh, a, a pretty good outcome. And then we had known from doing some work on a, a mall down the road that Ollie's had wanted to move. We reached out to them immediately. They were very interested in moving and relocating. Um, just in the time period of going to market and the leasing team going out there, we had um, gotten interest from Harbor Freight Tools and Goodwill and able to fill in the middle of a pandemic, February of 2020, Kmart was a tenant. Here we are in June of 2021. We have signed leases with those four tenants. Half of them are open and the rest set to open very shortly here. Uh, and the facade re, uh, redevelopment is always done. So that was the most recent reposition that was, you know, soup to nuts, uh, almost complete, really successful and a really good outcome in one of the darkest times in real estate. Yeah, no. And, and I mean, contrary to a lot of people saying the retail apocalypse, I mean, again, retail, in my opinion, similar to what you probably believe is that it's, it's not dead at all. And, and I think one of the lessons you could probably learn from that experience is that you saw several opportunities, one being the opportunity to re up with Joanne. And I, like you were mentioning, I, I believe, like you said, the, the, in the lease agreement that there was probably some sort of restrictions on your ability to perform, uh, like create an out parcel or to That's develop right. that out parcel. So that's a unique opportunity that I'm sure you identified during the process of due diligence. And then understanding that Kmart uh, in that market, I'm assuming, uh, had very low rents. And the fact that Kmart had been struggling for quite some time probably gave you some optimism as far as your ability to execute on the business plan to be able to move. Other yeah, that, in. That, that was clearly the biggest risk in the deal, right? Because mm -hmm. Kmart could have. Kmart could have exercised options. Mm -hmm. for you know till you know i was you know probably long gone i think it was in the you know for 50 years of options so if that had happened you know we would have coupon clipped the kmart rent it would have been an okay deal but not a transformative redevelopment sure well that's great that's awesome so one thing I wanted to ask you, which I, we talk about on this on this meetup quite a lot, is is brand building. Uh, I think it's so important in today's day and age in order to establish yourself in whatever industry you're in, whether you're a software consultant, whether you're in commercial real estate, regardless. So could you tell us a little bit about you know your experiences on LinkedIn, how you've been able to develop your brand on LinkedIn, and uh, some of the content that you produced? Uh, for those of you guys who don't know, Chris also run, uh, has a podcast called Retail Retold, uh, where he interviews you know, entrepreneurs and people just in the retail industry. And he really does a phenomenal job with the podcast. I've listened to several of the episodes, but can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how those efforts have helped you generate, you know, advance your career uh, and really just grow your brand? Yeah. So I think I'm a, so when I think of brand, the first thing I think about is like, 
you know, what is the identity? What, what, what do you want people to think of you? And I start with the end of the story versus the beginning. So what do you want people to think of you? And so I, I think there's riches and niches. And I think where people get caught is it's, it's, it's too, they're, they're, they're too broad. And I, you know, I saw one of the questions on the commercial real estate of uh, someone from a CRE agent. I think that, and if you think about, you go to any market in the, in the United States. And one of the things that I hear from commercial real estate it, brokers is, you know, what I'm thinking about and when they're communicating their brand, the most common thing I hear, which I think is just the table stakes. I don't think it's a brand, but I hear is that they know their market really well. <clears throat> That's just the table stakes. Like you, you better know your market well, whatever market you're operating in, right? We, we own in over 30 states. We better know all of them better than the people who live there. So that's the table stakes. <clears throat> to me, that's not a that's not that's not a good starting point for a brand identity. So I think the first thing to think about is I always think there's riches and niches. What is your brand? I think commercial. I think in, you you see this all the time, which is <clears throat> I think commercial real estate agents like here. Jack of all trades is no bueno. And so they're like, well, should I represent buyers? Should I represent sellers? Should I represent landlords or should I represent tenants? And should I do it in Dallas or should I do it in Dallas and Arkansas? And, and that's like the extent of like, there's what I would call riches and niches. And what I would say is you probably have to go deeper than that to get a brand that people connect with. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I see just outside looking in to the brokerage world is I think there's riches and niches and you have to really, um, when you're brand building, you have to think about, you know, what do, you know, one of the simple things is what do you want people to think you're the expert on and then become the expert on that? If, if you were to say like Atlanta commercial real estate, what I would say is there's a lot of people who are experts in Atlanta commercial real estate. If you were to even go deeper and say Atlanta retail commercial real estate, there's a lot of experts on that. Quite candidly, there's experts on that that don't live in Atlanta. You know, I, I would consider myself like pretty in tune in the Atlanta market. That's not brand defining for me in Atlanta. And I don't live in Atlanta, but it's just an example. And so there's riches and niches and, you know, um, that that's... That's one of the things that I would say, you know, there's when you're talking about personal brand that that's not to say you can't join the CBRE team, be on their retail side, use the collaboration of the platform to be a successful landlord listing broker or tenant rep broker. But when we're talking about brand and identifying brand, I don't think that you know, saying I'm the retail real estate expert in Atlanta, there's a lot of them. So that's hard to be, to get through the noise if you're in a brand. So there's riches and niches. Definitely. No, for sure. And, and again, I think part of it, like you said, is sitting down and really learning what you want. Like what's your objective, try to get yeah. a feel for what you really want to be known for and, and drill down into that. And, and 
really be consistent over time. I mean, you, you, you produce a lot of content both on LinkedIn and obviously with the podcast. And I'm sure, it, I mean, you start from somewhere and just continue to go over time. So like I, I heard like, here's this is to be more specific. I, I recently heard of someone who that my team was talking about who if in, I forget what market in Texas, but they are, they have the monopoly on people from Central America and South America that want to open up restaurants in this part of Texas. I forget if it was Dallas or Houston. This is the broker that represents them. There's nobody else. And so that's a really strong niche. And so now that's a way to define your brand, right? And so you're expert in Hispanic restaurants in this month. No, okay. Now, now we know what you're all about, what you do from an actual work perspective as it relates to commercial real estate. To me, that was when I was, you know, as we're talking about brand, that's something that just clicked to me like, okay, that's, that's the person who does that. And so do you always have to go like that? No. But the point that I would say is the think about what you want people to think of you as the thought leader on and the expert in, and then start marketing to that. Sure. No, for sure. No. And I mean, I've seen some other people do it in the commercial real estate space. There's this gentleman named Tyler Cobble that he specializes in like East Nashville. And he does a lot of you know, he does primarily, that's all he focuses on is East Nashville. And he does a lot of YouTube and podcast content as well. And I'm assuming that that's helped him. That's helped pay dividends over time for him as well. So awesome. So one thing that I wanted to ask you before we kind of open up to Q and a is, is what advice would you give to someone if they're interested in incorporating, you know, a, you know, pursuing something similar to obviously not at the scale of DSDLC, but there's people out there that, that listen to this content as well that are on in the process of, you know, commercial real estate investment, where they're, they're going through the process of acquiring commercial properties and bring it into the fold and then repositioning them to maximize investor investor value. So could you kind of give advice to those individuals who are, you know, starting to scale in that front? Uh, you know, I think that'd be helpful. Um, Today's environment, commercial real estate is a team sport and you better have the right team in place. We've taken that to heart and said at DLC that it's so important that we are, you know, willing to take on the overhead and bring people in house because you can't do anything without the right people. There's a lot of people who invest in real estate and then they third party everything out and they're a small little firm. Um, we took the opposite approach because, you know, in really being collaborative and working with the team and, and, and all that, we have a lot of regular brainstorms on properties and thinking of ideas and asking different people's perspectives internally. So whenever you're starting, the first thing I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about getting into commercial real estate and starting to invest is, do you have the team lined up? Doesn't have to all be W2 employees that work for you, but you need the team. It is about a team. Awesome. Some great advice. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and open it up to Q and a, for those of you guys who are in zoom, feel free to type away. I'll be checking on Facebook as well for questions. I think Richard asked a question and you kind of addressed it a bit, but it's how can a local Siri agent complement the skill sets of an experienced firm such as yours? Are there opportunities for synergies? 
So I'm not sure that I totally know where they're going on. Are there opportunities for synergies? Are, or do they want to work with my firm? Is that where the question is like, because when they say, how are they complementing the skills sets of an experienced firm? I think what he's saying, and not just for you, but in general, when you're talking about, you know, commercial real estate agent, a value proposition to a, you know, a larger firm that invests in, in these properties. So, so um, what, what, like, what does a commercial real estate agent have to do to get our business? Is that, is that like the question? Yeah, Richard, if you could elaborate a little bit on that. It seems like what he's saying is, So in, in, it's a little bit different in your case because you, you were completely, you're virtually, virtually Yeah, but, but if someone we're trying to get in, right, we've done, we've done things, we, we've had specific cases where we've done things. I think the first thing is, and we do this with our clients, understand the client's needs. I think that's the first and foremost is like, do your homework, understand the client's needs. Um, you know, when someone, when, when an investment sales broker calls and like says, are you, you know, what are you thinking about acquiring? To me, like starting off like that, they've kind of gotten off the wrong, the wrong foot because we're pretty public about what we want. And it's pretty public of what we've purchased, right? You could go find that Washington DC deal and see what we've done. Whereas if they came to me and said, hey, listen, I just saw the deal you did in Frederick. I know your acquisition quite criteria pretty well. I've got an off-market opportunity in Louisville and here's the set of circumstances. This is why I think it might be a good opportunity for you. Do you have 10 minutes to go through it? Well, you've got my attention loud and clear. Let's talk about it. Yeah, so I think what it comes down to is 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 really drilling down and really understanding um, what Clients. the person wants. And, and I think that's applicable to any type of business. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, show that you've done your homework, show that you understand what their needs are, and then try to fill that need if you can. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of like, <sighs> listen, there's, there's certainly, certainly value in just hammering through a list and making calls with, hey, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a 1031 broker. I've got a, you know, this is how I help people. That is, we get a million of those. So if you want to stand out, especially, you know, when you're talking to the people making decisions, the C-suite executives across America, they've got limited time, do your homework. And most of the time, the homework is pretty easy to do. No, of course. Awesome. So I, we have one that we were going to be asking. Uh, what resources or publications do you recommend to learn more um, about the retail industry? So I guess retail industry publications that you follow and, you know, what advice would you give, I guess, on that front? Yeah, so I am a pretty voracious reader and I try to consume a ton of data. So there's a lot, and I think there's a lot of new ones that have really come to the forefront uh, as well. So um, I think the first and foremost is 
if you're interested in the retail side and the intersection of retail and real estate, I think the NRF and ICSC. So I'm, a, I'm very big on ICSC, International Council of Shopping Centers. If you're not a member and you're in retail real estate, you should be a member. Uh, the NRF is the National Retail Federation. They both produce a lot of content that's really fascinating, engaging, and really helpful to understanding what's going on in today's marketplace. Those are two places, you know, I, from a, you know, from a real estate perspective, I, you know, look at Globe Street stuff, um, you know, on the, on the intersection of retail and commercial real estate, I think personally, I've spent a lot of time really trying to be thoughtful and an expert on the retail side of it, thinking if I knew that, I've spent my career just working in real estate. So, you know, I look at um, the business of fashion, supermarket, supermarket news. I read freight waves. Uh, these are things I do that are a little more retail specific. They don't even necessarily talk about real estate, but they help inform so that we can make better real estate decisions. Awesome. That's some great advice. I actually took some notes as well so I can check out some of those. I, I've followed some of the ICSC content as well. I, I would like to get, I should get involved in ICSC as well. I'm involved in several other organizations, but that's one to consider. Okay. You know, one of the things too, like if you just look at NARI, mm -hmm. these are large institutions that are making decisions. I think it's really good. I think all the major brokers houses put out fantastic data, CBRE, JLL. Yeah. What were you saying? Na oh, NA, NA rep, NA rep. Is that what you're measuring? So NARI? Yeah, so NARI, like they're the, they're the organization that takes all the real estate investment trusts and creates this and right. Most of the REITs in America own a lot of real estate in America. So there's um, a lot of good insights on the strategies of REITs. I, I'll tell you something that I do all the time that I maybe as a separator or not, but you know, I'm, we're a private company. We own about $3 billion of real estate. I listen to all recalls, not all, but I listen to a lot of recalls, especially the ones I consider earnings calls that I consider competitors. It's giving their strategy. I read their supplements. The financial supplements are hugely helpful, right? Like it shows how many leases they did. What were the rent spreads? Um, how did they move NOI? What are they doing on their redevelopments? So it gives a lot of insight. And then I listen to a lot of retailer earnings calls and read a lot of retailer decks. Um, there's a ton of retailers that are going public right now. You want to get insight on, you know, the, how retailers, if you're a retailer that's going public, you see a lot of growth in your business. So how are they thinking about the marketplace from an omni-channel perspective, from a tech perspective, from a physical store footprint, where they see sales going? To me, this is great intel. So I'll read up on a bunch of stuff. Krispy Kreme and Warby Parker just announced. Joanne went public. Petco went public. These are things, you know, I'm constantly looking at. Okay, why are they doing this? What are they seeing in the marketplace? What? How are they going to gain share? Uh, these are insightful um, things to read up on. Sure. And I think you mentioned that on the, the live call you had this morning. I remember you mentioning yeah. you know, Warby Parker and Petco and various yeah, other yeah. things. Is there a reason you see that? And this is more, I, and you touched on this in the, in the call, but for those who are listening right now, with, 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 it seems like there's a lot of larger retailers that are, that are looking to take the 
you know, the routes of going public. Is there, do you see, is there a reason for why you believe that that's the case? Yeah. So, I mean, one, I think it's good news that there's obviously demand in the public stock market to, for people to buy shares into a retailer in a world where you think of retail apocalypse, clearly um, the public markets are saying there's growth and opportunity for uh, people who are primarily physical retail. Uh, so that's the first piece. I, I think the second piece is it's definitely, you know, situational, but by and large, the, if you look at the frothy stock market, the retailers who are going public came out of the pandemic potentially stronger than they were going in. And this is an opportunity to pour jet fuel on something that's already working. Definitely. Well, that's awesome to hear. Yeah. And especially like, like several of the ones you mentioned, I, I, I could see why that was the case, especially during the pandemic. So, yeah, I think one that surprised everyone was Joanne owned by private equity for a while. I mentioned sure. it before. Yeah, you did. But, but they, you know, Joanne stores, some might consider crowded space. You have Michael's arts and crafts, Hobby Lobby and Joanne and, you know, three car category killers. Uh, Michael's actually went from public to private. And Joanne um, is owned by private equity and the private equity firm finally probably saw time for them to monetize. Joanne's got a great buy online, pick up in store, great uh, e-commerce. Um, they've remodeled some stores. There's more growth in the stores. There's more growth online and the stock market's frothy. And therefore there was a good opportune time to do an IPO. That's awesome. 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 Okay. So I'm looking to see if we have any more questions. Feel free to type away in Zoom if you'd like. Okay. You know, I, I see, I see the off market opportunities thing. Was that you who wrote that or Richard? that was, that was Richard. That was Richard. So I think he was, he was typing as you were, as you were, um, as you were referencing uh, off market, because I think during your elaboration, you referenced, you know, yeah, that, it was an example. I think, mm -hmm. I think the point that I was, it was a, it, th that was a way to get, there's no, my, my, I didn't want to get, it might be an on the market opportunity, mm -hmm. but what I would say is, you know, someone who's like, I have this really great opportunity in X. And I would say, well, you sh the opportunity specific to the person that you're presenting the opportunity to. It's not that it's off market per se, it might be on the market, but it might be that you understand what we're doing and why that is a great opportunity. Because if you're, if the opportunity, if you're telling me the opportunity is good for me in the same manner in which you're the other 10 potential buyers that you called, you're not going to gain anyone's attention. Yeah, no. So it's, it's really just clearly understanding the needs of the person you're, you're talking to. And yeah, that's what identify. I was trying to get. Yeah. No, I understand 100% what you're saying. And again, like like we said earlier, I mean, it applies to anything in business. It doesn't it's not just totally. real estate. It applies to every single thing. And retailers do the same thing. If they can provide a great value proposition for the clients that come through their stores, I mean, that's how they stay in business. So that's awesome. 
Okay. So I think, I think we have all the questions that we, we have, unless anyone else in the zoom call wants to ask, I was checking on Facebook. It looks like we have our, all our questions answered. So Chris really do appreciate your time. How, if someone wanted to, you know, learn more about you, uh, get in contact with you, et cetera, what, what's the best way for people to do so? So you can go to our website, dlcmgmt.com, check out, uh, me on LinkedIn, uh, Ressa on real estate is my hashtag. You can follow that. I, I put out a lot of content on LinkedIn and then, uh, check out our podcast retail retold. Um, speaking of niches, when we decided to create a podcast, there's a lot of real estate podcasts. There's a lot of retail podcasts. Ours really focuses on the intersection of retail and real estate. And we call it the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. So you will hear, I often say that people will sit around a dinner table and say, they put Starbucks over there. I say the show brings you who they is and how it happened. That's awesome. Yeah. I listened to their most recent one on armor, armor coffee. Oh, there you uh, go. The gentleman from, from Texas. So yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great podcast. I highly recommend it. And, and like you said, follow, follow Chris on, on uh, LinkedIn. He does produce a ton of content. So if you guys want to learn more about retail and you know, that sort of thing, I think it's, it's a great follow. So thanks so much, man. Awesome. Well, thanks, Chris. Thanks you all Thank for you. tuning in. And for those of you guys who are watching on Facebook and YouTube, again, if you're watching on YouTube, feel free to like, and subscribe. It really helps with the YouTube algorithm ensures more and more people can watch this. And uh, I guess we'll see you guys next time. Thanks. See you guys. Bye.